When did the church lose the culture war? Spoiler alert, they lost a different war a long time before. Let's talk about that as we watch our culture stray further every day. Howdy, Jonathan Fiala, your host for Further Every Day, and uh, I'm joined with a full panel here. Uh, I'm going to just go around the room in just a moment, but before I do, i got two special guests to introduce. First off, I'd like to introduce Josh Mathias. How are you, sir? Doing good. This is actually Pastor Josh Mathias. You've been a youth pastor for nine years now? That's correct. Okay. So... Josh, this is going to be fun. Josh <laughs> has been a youth pastor for nine years in a in a Houston church, and faithfully so. And then, of course, to his left, also in our guest seat, we got uh, Mr. Kevin. How's it going, sir? Doing well. Glad to have you there. And you've been in youth ministry for over twenty years. You were just telling me. Yes. So I, I never left. You, <laughs> you've both touched hundreds, thousands of lives. Uh, so that's going to be really important today. Actually, uh, Mr. Producer knows both of them from a from the church that uh, he goes to. So with that said, I want to introduce everyone else on the panel. Thank you both for being here. Miss Nikki in the Chair of Theology, how's it going? Good morning. It's going well. Glad to have you there. Dealing with the reason why we believe what we believe. And uh, yeah, a little bit of vocal warm-up here. <laughs> you know that that that, that first crusty moment when you're you're starting a talk. <clears throat> yeah. So a little bit of water. I I will want water before this is done, but I probably won't get it. Uh, yours truly sitting in chair of host and the chair of theology. Matthias is kind of uh, sharing that with me here. We got uh, Steve in the chair of uh, politics. How's yeah, it going? I'm not going to do the box today because no, uh, you need to do the box. No, because. Uh, Fiala thinks I'm like robotting, so he doesn't understand the difference between a box and a robot. I did it for you. So okay, uh, but I am going to be politically incorrect. Those who like only normal, those who only listen to audio are very confused. Uh, over to <laughs> his right, we got uh, uh, Josh, and I'm going to say he's in the chair of culture or wherever you want to be. You can't put me inside of a box. You can't, you can't be boxed. Ooh. This is Josh unboxed. Glad to have you there, sir. And of course, to his left, we got the Charlie. How's it Greetings. going? Greetings. It's going well. All right, so we've got a Josh and a Josh. I'm going to call Matthias, okay. our youth pastor, uh, wonderful, wonderful guest. And, of course, we got Gilbert, yours, uh, just your recurrent friend your of the show, <laughs> who comes on and comes off. I'm glad to have you here today, buddy. So uh, how did the church lose the culture war? That was a long intro, but let's go ahead and talk about it. When you're talking about the culture war, one of the things I think that's really missed is the church. We, we get very Republican. We get very Democrat here in, in America. And yes, there is a difference. There is an importance to what the values of that. The Republican Party was set up to abolish the twin relics of slavery and barbarism. Great institution at its original founding and core. It's kind of lost its way. And the reason it's lost its way is largely because of what's happened in the church. Let's kind of go back for a moment. And Josh uh, Gilbert is going to discuss this in a while, but we're going to kind of pause on that for now. In the 1940s and 1960s, what did we see in seminaries? What kind of happened to the 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 thought of biblical inerrancy? Does anyone know? You saw in the 1800s, you saw this push towards uh, textual criticism and, and textual criticism can be good in this one sense. If it's if it's looking at the Bible and saying, "I want to understand what they were saying," if you're looking at the criticism in the form, there's higher and lower criticism. If you look at the form of textual criticism as saying, "I can't trust what was written in my Bible because it was not properly preserved," or because Matthew, uh, sorry, Mark. 16, 9 through 20 wasn't in the so-called, quote, earliest manuscripts. A lot of people started to lose their worldview and their faith in seminary. And so where we start to see this is actually in the stats. Mr. Producer, if you can pull up that graph, and that graph, this graph is coming from a news Gallup poll, okay? So he's going to work on that real quick. But what this graph looks at is the 1930s through 2010 or so. And what we see is a slow, steady decline right after the clergy of that time, go ahead, started to not believe in an inerrant Bible. Some people, they, you started to have this change in the belief in a strong worldview and that everything in the Bible could be trusted. In the 1950s, if you look, in 1954, you saw an all-time high 
uh, in America, you saw 49% of those polled said that they've been in a church, synagogue, or mosque in the last seven days. Majority of those being, the vast majority of those being churches. Then you start to see a decline in the 50s and towards the 70s, you go from 49 to 40%. And now it's down to 39% in 2010. As of this poll, thank you, Mr. Producer, it is even lower today. Because when you take God out of seminaries, when you have seminary uh, theologians in some of these Ivy League seminaries who do not believe that God is God even, they are atheistic, it's Bible as literature. I'm not talking about every seminary. There are some that you have people who are apostates or they never believed in God, and they are teaching these young seminarians that God is not real. Then what happened? We talked about it a couple of podcasts ago. What happened in 1961? What court decision came in? Well, I was going to say this corresponds with the <clears throat> removal of prayer in the schools. And it was interesting to see the the dynamics of that all coming together. And one thing that goes through my mind regarding seminaries is you have a situation that's almost mimicking what the world is doing with the higher educational institutions you're introducing things that are just that they're no, fundamentally don't make sense no absolute truth right so i i, I want to address the next couple of graphs in just a moment and by the way links in the description below as always but i kind of want to go around the room real quick here because we're going to see this mirrored in what happened to our society as far as sat scores as far as uh early pregnancies what happens when you divorce yourself from absolute truth miss nikki well, you're going <clears> to, <throat> there I go again. Um, you see a decline in the education, in the test scores. That's what you started to see. And But the reason being is that you took God out. And I think there was at the time when, when in the public school and there was the, the prayer and things of that nature, people looked to a higher, a higher power. And then when prayer was taken out, then I think they, you know, just relied on them themselves. And I think there's a big difference. I think that even applies to um, the crime. When crime was punished in a biblical manner, like quickly, um, there was less crime. And now I think you see that. Absolutely. So I want to give Mr. Producer there for a moment. He's working on something there. Uh, a moment. Josh, when you see that divorcement from God in the seminary, and, and it, again, it wasn't every seminary. I'm not picking on seminary, but you started to see that kind of creep in, that sort of atheistic, Gnostic idea. How does that affect a pastor's ability to speak authoritatively on, on the Scripture, and more importantly, like the moral values that are there, that relationship with God? Uh, I mean, I feel like it just kind of gets you to that point as a pastor where uh, to me, it just kind of you have to like reiterate some of these like foundational things that whenever you know seminaries and things that we're teaching in such a way that um, just foundational truths like to us like if if you know we were to talk about God like there's going to be things that we just when you see when you say God or you say Jesus there's foundational ideas that we know so when you remove a lot of those foundational things it's like you have to reteach some of those things and then it just kind of spend so much time working on those things to the point that whenever you get to another point of trying to really apply what, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be, you know, a follower of Christ and things? It just kind of makes it a little difficult, I think, in just like in life, like just for somebody, like as a pastor where I'm training somebody up, you know, it just, it, it affects how much time I have to really touch on those like simple foundational things, I guess. So, so. So definition of terms is really important. Yeah, yeah, because I think you can easily confuse those things to the point that you know when I say something versus when someone else says something, it's it could be totally different and um, just the way that that person's interpreting. Yeah. So I, I've I've got two questions coming in, and I want to say C.S. Lewis really said this really well in Mere Christianity. I want to go to Kevin, and then I want to go to Charlie because they both have something they want to input here. Lewis said, "When you diminute the word Christian." And you talk about good Christian niceties, good Christian morals, as opposed to a Christ follower. 
you've removed the meaning of the word. And that's what we've lost in our culture. We've lost the meaning of some of the most basic words because we have this watered down context and it, it allows a lot to flow through. Mr. Kevin. Yeah. Uh, going back to the question that we started with, when did we lose the culture war? And if you look at this graph, it goes to 2009. And we look at, you know, 1954, look at it 49%. What happened in 2019? COVID. Mm -hmm. What's happened over the last few years? We don't have Wednesday services. We don't have Sunday night services. So I think the church is involved a little bit with taking the church out of society a little bit because we're not, you miss, you miss on Sunday morning. That's seven days. Indeed. So even, even if you go past 2009, you may even have less that would say, you know, were they in, in church in the last four or five days or and, six days? And we're going to get to that and we're going to dig in because you're actually picking it at, at the current core and we're going to go back a little bit and kind of lead up to today. But you're 100% correct. That is what's happening today. The church is, has excised herself. And I would make the argument that she excised herself a long time ago. And right now we're doing more and more and more, and we're retreating. Mr. Charlie, you wanted to say something. I, I think you spot on hit it a moment ago with the C.S. Lewis analogy. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christians today. And I would advocate to our listeners and to those that are that are watching, you can use the term Christian. That go ahead and use that, but you need to back that up with what that term really means. Christian, little Christ, you are a Christ follower. If you're not mimicking the ways of Christ, I would dare say you don't have any authority to use the title Christian. So. I want to go ahead and zoom out a little bit, and then I want to get Josh and Steve's thoughts on the on the next graph in just a moment. But Mr. Producer, if you could pull up the next graph. This one, again, is from Gallup, and this is the trend in America's beliefs in a God, and not necessarily just the Judeo-Christian Yahweh Jehovah, but in a God. Throw that up there. Excuse me. Throw that up there for a moment. Thank you. So in the 1950s, like we said, we're starting off at near 95% or so. It's the 95 percentile category of people in America believed in God. As of 2020, we're down to 81%. It is an all-time low. And we're going to talk just a little bit more in a second as to what happened in the education system. Thank you, Mr. Producer. Uh, but I kind of want to get Steve and Josh's thoughts, uh, Gilbert's thoughts, on this, um, when you've got a church that is believing less in God, or have let me, let me actually articulate that better because I just I didn't articulate that well. When you have a church that is less focused on knowing the holy, complete, true God, and they believe that He has not been able to keep His Bible true, and I know that we're we're going to get digging into this in a little bit, Gilbert. What happens? to the culture around that church. When God is no longer holy, when God is no longer uh, undeniable in the church, what happens to the culture? You asking me that? Go ahead. Well, when you get to that point, you know, the, the, the younger people start feeling like they're being left out or being left behind at points because, you know, the, they're at a point to where they're thinking one way and at, at times they're, they're feeling religious. Maybe, uh, you know, they haven't been completely saved yet and they're walking that path and they haven't walked up the aisle yet. And then they, they skip off to college and now they're being fed a bunch of things or, or topics that, will make the scientists, scientific scientism, scientism, right. There you go. That's the word I was looking for. And they're being fed that and being told that, well, you know, 
that doesn't mend with religion and you can't believe this and you can't believe that because the earth is this many billions of years old because we can prove it because look at all these dinosaurs people didn't walk with them and you know it's billions and billions of years old oil's made out of dead dinosaurs and all of this kind of things and then you so know how could, so how could you have a young earth right how can you have a young earth and um you know, or the Bible wasn't written by this. There's too many contradictions, and there's this, there's that, and they start piling all these things on, but they don't give examples. Mm -hmm. They just tell you, and it starts in these young minds, they start thinking about all of this. Start thinking. Indeed. And it makes them think, and it starts putting doubt in their minds. Absolutely. Gilbert. You just went through, you're probably the most recent college graduate in this group. Uh, so how do you see that in, in your peers as you've been just right fresh out of that higher education? You've watched a lot of friends go through that struggle where they have the church. And by the way, we're going to talk about this next episode next week when we talk about how one of the major complaints of youth is that they don't feel that they have a safe space to talk about their questions. How do, how do I take the scientism truth claims about evolution in school in regards to the Bible? Which one is true? You've seen a lot of people go through that struggle. What happens when the church has not been a good buttress against the world's doctrines and philosophies? So there's a harsh reality, and I want to take a full step back here to address the whole complexity of the problem. Because, yes, prayer was taken out of school in the 60s. Yes, we we saw the introduction of uh, German higher criticism into seminaries. But we really need to address the fact that the issue was there long before any of that stuff happened. And I think it ultimately comes down to this, and I heard it said one time, and it's so true, you either have faith or you do not. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You either believe that God is the one who can part the can part the sea and lead his children through the sea and get to the other side of the sea, or you don't believe he's that part, he's that God. And you don't believe that that happened. It's it's one or the other. And so simply put, I think that in the 60s, you see before, prior to the 60s, you see a culture that has laws and has um, legislation that directly implements Christian values and Christian principles. But I think people you'll find, and I think this is a pretty true statement, is that people are creatures of habit. And so whatever has been your habit that you've been doing, you'll just do the habit. And you won't really question the habit. It'll just be something that you are continuously partaking in. And so when it comes to prayer in schools— Whenever it came out, you saw why did you see a drastic decrease in in, in Christ followers or in, or in people who believed in God? Well, it's ultimately because <laughs> there really was no God to begin with that they believed in. It was just a a very it was a matter of convenience. It was a matter of what was in the law, what was in the law, what was in the legislation. And when these people then see in the civil rights movement this rise of black uh, black power and Islam. Islam starts getting introduced at a very rapid rate. And then you also have the rise of atheism and communist ideologies. You, you have this real questioning of like, what the heck is going on? Indeed. Because you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, is the church doing something or, or are we doing something wrong? And we should always be asking that question. But ultimately I don't think, when you look at it, I, I really think the problem was way before oh, yeah. any of that stuff. And it really happened when the church stopped interacting with the culture with the presupposition that God is real, that God is true, and that actually if you really believe that God is righteous and you really believe that he is real and you believe that he is your salvation, you're going – to act in a certain way. You're going to push for prayer in schools. You're going to push for things to be done a certain way in society. 
if you don't believe that God is imminent and that there is a, a loss, you're going to try to win the culture for Christ. You're going to push in that direction. But we lost that a long time ago, and we started to focus on, well, I want to be more polite, because, you know, as, as Vody Bauckham Jr. has so eloquently put it, the 11th commandment is, be nice. Mm. Thou shalt be nice. And we're so focused on the the liberality of a of a country that's open to strangers and people who have different beliefs, which we should be. We should be. But we should never give up the voice that God gave us to say, this is truth. You can take it or leave it. We're not going to force you to do anything. We don't want to command you by the sword to say, accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. By the way, Catholics in the, you know, in the Middle, mm-hmm. Middle Ages, you kind of screwed that up. I'm just saying that was an abuse of power. That was never what God intended. But having a righteous culture that has enforced in law godly principles, not mandating prayer, but allowing people to pray if the teacher wanted to in school, you shouldn't be forced to muzzle that. Ms. Charlie. Uh, I- I think we've whitewashed our churches by making God into a God of unicorns, lollipops, and rainbows. And the second way is we have, um, as Christians, basically we've gone to church just so that we can, on Sunday, so that we can say that we've gone to church. However, during the week, we make no mention of God or try to, to show his hand involved in our lives at all. So let's see how that plays out. Let's see how that plays out. When you remove, Mr. Producer, if you can get that uh, uh, study ready, uh, when we removed God from schools, okay? And some people are going to say, you had no business having God in schools anyway. Look, you have transgenders dancing and showing their 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 mm-hmm. privates to kids in schools right now and in libraries. Do not tell me about your you have a pagan religion in schools right now. Do not tell me that we can't have prayer if a teacher wants to pray and thank God for the school. Not force kids, but thank God for the time and pray a blessing over the kids. Don't tell me that you can't have that because you guys are doing stuff that is way different, way off the chain. Go ahead and show us what happened to SAT scores. For those of you who are, you know, so we're all looking down at our cell phones. Uh, people in here aren't being disrespectful, I promise, guy, dear viewer, but we're looking at the charts because it's hard to see on the screen over there. But in the 1960s, you had had a slow increase, a very slow, gradual increase in test scores leading up to that time frame, five years, 10 years after prayer was removed from school. What do we see? Drastic drops in both the uh, uh, mathematical, writing, verbal, uh, categories across the board with SAT scores. Each one of those graphs, by the way, link in the description below if you want a high-res image. Thank you, Mr. Producer. Uh, Shows that we plummeted in academics. We also saw something else occur. Uh, Mr. Producer, if you can get that ready. We saw an increase in unwed teenage pregnancies. And the pink line you see here is births age 15 to 19 (laughs) under. And then the other birth, other is the birth rate of girls 15 to 19. Now, don't be confused when you read this. We have been losing fertility rates in America. That's been going down since the 40s, since the baby boom, which is, you know, that's understandable. But it's dropped so much lower. And that's something we've talked about before. I don't want to get into it. But you see right in 10 years after the Bible was removed, you see a drastic increase, and it started at 1961. Unwed pregnancies in school. What happened? They were no longer allowed to have the Ten Commandments in there. They were no longer allowed to pray over God. God's influence wasn't in the school. So, and then final graph for now, Mr. Producer, there's been an increase. What's the net result of this? We see examples. We see test scores going down. We see a decrease in understanding, but then you have a decrease in people who are, quote, religious as Christians, and you have an increase in the religious non-affiliated, the spiritual people. So I actually want to propose this to Josh uh, Matthias here. When you have a culture that was built on Christ, there's a strong influence. You were talking about how the cultural lexicon, there were things that meant something. Sin meant sin. A Christian meant someone who lived a certain way. As we've diluted that, there's been a vacuum. 
And we've seen that vacuum filled by people who are religious non-affiliates. Those have increased at a threefold rate from 8% to 29% since the 90s coming up to today. Does the human heart desire to worship something? And what is that something ultimately going to entail? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that we our heart wants to worship something because we're wired to, right? Like we're wired to worship God. And so uh, our heart's going to look for something and it's going to kind of like cling on to whatever in certain cases fits what they want, right? Like if if I want to worship God because I believe in what God is and the the truth of what's talked about in the Bible, I'm going to worship him. But if I want to worship something else that matters to me, I'm going to cling to that thing and I'm going to make sure that everything that I do reflects that belief. And so, you know, we're talking about what's the term, unaffiliate, like not, you know, like nominal Christianity, right? Like just simply saying, you know, I'm a Christian, but it lacks that commitment. Um, I think to some extent, everyone has like a God that they're worshiping. And so it's just a matter of what, what kind of like fits into their lifestyle and what they care about and what they, they desire basically. So go ahead, Josh Gilbert. Great term for this. Heard it recently. And I, it brought me back to my college days in 2017 moral therapeutic deism. Mm, yes. That is exactly what it is. It's people who want a God that's just there for them sometimes. Um, he's not omnipresent. He's not uh, He's not all-powerful. But in the moment that they want him to just comfort them, he'll be there. Uh, but it's a super disconnected view of who God is. And it's ultimately a God that serves you and not a you that serves God. So uh, I want to get Kevin real quick, and then I'm going to go to Miss Nikki. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> just, just ignore so, the amens from Steve. He's a he, amen, amen, amen. amen. So I'm going to go back to the same question we posed first. You know, when did we lose the culture war? I can. So what happened in the '60s? Abortion, drugs. What happened in the 70, a little bit more of the same, and then we add politics. And then, you know, so over the decades, we keep adding all this, and it's like we're putting politics. So the church all of a sudden is fighting battles on the drug, the drug side, the abortion side, unwed pregnancy side, all these different fronts. We're like, okay, let's go out there and let's fight all these, these fronts, and he's splitting the church up trying to get us, I think— sidetracked because now instead of fighting the battle we should be fighting which we've kind of forgot what the what we're fighting for here we should be fighting on the gospel front amen throwing that out there putting that out there in society but right now he's splitting us up part of the church is worried about the politics part of the church is is worried about the drugs part of the church and we're fighting all these fronts and we're not fighting on the front that will ultimately win all those battles. He being the enemy of our souls, right. Satan, Satan, a hundred percent. And, and that's something uh, I think really needs to be said over and over again in more churches. Miss Nikki. Well, going back to, I just wanted to throw this out to you as, as a um, kind of thorn in your side. I, I don't mean to be, but. Oh, nuts. <clears throat> <laughs> so we want to we want to say we 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 stopped prayer and the the test scores dropped. Well, if you look at the Asian children who don't come from a Christian mm -hmm. society, their test scores are great. I mean, the problem is that they're a whole lot smarter than the American kids. So the argument would be that they would say, "Okay, well, that's not a good argument for you to make because the Asian countries are not focused on God." Absolutely. And their scores are great. So let me answer that. Go ahead. Yeah? So when you have, I just said it earlier, when you have a vacuum, something will fill it. And if mm -hmm. you do not fill it with the structured values, the Protestant work ethic is what structured America and what made her successful. It was a deep diligence and perseverance to God. Guess what happens to the Asian countries when they come here? You have two, three generations of strong people. And then if they don't hang on to their culture of excellence, but they merge with America without something like Christianity to, and I'm, I'm attacking this from a very 
neutral, almost um, uh, agnostic, atheistic perspective at the moment, and I'll, I'll, I'll work it back. I promise it, I'll click it in. If you don't fill it with something like Christianity, those students will become lazy. They will become worthless, and they will fall. It only takes a couple generations for that to fall. Guess what happens if they accept Christianity and they get rid of the strict legalism of their country? They're going to flourish. They're going to flourish. So what is the difference between those those two? One, you have peace, and the other one, you do not. Mm-hmm. One of them, you are struggling to maintain the suicide rate. In Japan, yes, it is, is yes. high. The fertility rate is one of the lowest, if not the singular, singularly lowest fertility rates in the world. Yes, Josh, and then Charlie. Josh, were you saying you wanted something? Oh no, I just, I just wanted to add. I think work ethic is a humongous this the the cultural value of work ethic. And the question is, why do you have that work ethic? Is it because I must honor my ancestors? Or is it because I must honor God and I also honor my ancestors? One, you can find fulfillment and peace. The other, you will live a legalistic, strict life. You can live that way. You can you can thrive that way. But I, I would argue that I think there's a lack of joy. Yeah, the point on Japan, uh, they even have concerns about sustaining their country. It, it, they're going it's a to very die big concern. as a, as a race. The Jap the Japanese are headed really quickly for a cultural death. So, moving on to the final point for today, I kind of want to wrap, start to wrap today because we've got a lot of people. We're going to have a lot of thoughts, but I do want to before I do talk to Josh because one uh, Gilbert because he he said off air he wanted to address this when we were kind of chatting about what was so critically important that was lost during the uh, 1800s and culminating in the 40s 50s 60s in seminaries was a lack of confidence in the preservation of God's word and this is something that's near and dear to to my heart you know done a lot of research on this Gilbert has done a lot of research on this. There are other people in this room who have done a lot of research on this. Gilbert, why should we as Christians have a strong – and I don't want to use the word faith because people don't understand what that word means. It means a confidence, a creed, an understanding. But why should we have a strong amount of confidence in the inerrancy and preservation of God's word? Here's the beautiful thing. When you look at the ancient manuscripts, 98.8% of them agree on everything. Agree on on agree on the things and none of them disagree on key doctrinal matters. That is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And here's some here's something to ponder for the listener. And I think this is a great question that you you might be asking is that you might be saying well how can i know so i know we have the early main the earliest manuscript in 135 ad uh papyri 45 i believe it was but how do i know that it wasn't twisted in those 80 years or 50 years after uh after the original manuscripts were published this would pose a lot of different issues if it was changed and there's a lot of evidence to say it wasn't changed firstly there are many different geographical locations that these manuscripts were produced in, uh, and it was produced by many different authors, and it was also produced in different languages. And so you would have to – and that's ultimately because there was no single authority over the manuscripts. If there was a singular authority who had control over manuscript traditions and over manuscripts, then you could say that. And in, actually in Islam, you did see that uh, in the 600s. There was this gentleman named Uthman, and he had control over the manuscripts, and a lot of people would bring questions over to him like, well, how did we get – because in earlier manuscripts, we had these words in it, but they're in these whole entire passages in it, but where did they all go? Because the people, the older generation noticed that they were gone. But with Christianity, you did not have that. In fact, the the people that the place where these manuscripts were produced and for the New Testament specifically, uh, those people were trying to squash it out. Those people were trying to destroy everything associated with Christianity because they saw it as a threat to the power structure of their of their government. And I think it's a testament to the fact that all of those different factors would show you that. How can you have manuscripts that are 98.8% consistent and completely 100% consistent on doctrinal matters 
if you're writing these in ge different geographical locations and different, I would ha I would be hard pressed to say it's not because the original manuscripts that there was no tainting from the original manuscripts. So just to define some terms there, because some people aren't necessarily as read up as as Josh is on this, and 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 thank you, Josh, for putting that out there. I just want to lay out what he means when he says authors. He's talking about people who were not authoring; they are transcribing your 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 reference materials. You have codices volumes, scrolls that are only, you know, three or four generations till today. That means that that manuscript, and we have almost 5,000 of the New Testament alone. You want to talk about the Masoretic, the Masoretic tradition, the Dead Sea Scrolls proved 2,500 years of perfect preservation of the Old Testament, okay? And the Dead Sea Scrolls really lent credence to that. We have 2,500 years of inerrant preservation of the Old Testament. It's not that hard to believe that three or four copies back that are similar from the original autographs, as they would call them, the originals that were written by, say, Moses or by uh, uh, Ezra, those are accurate. Those are legitimate. In the case of the 5,000 different copies of the New, of the, uh, New Testament, Josh is saying different areas. We're talking about often the uh, uh, Central uh, East, uh, sorry, Central West Asia and we have people in Germany copying all these different Latin manuscripts. manuscripts. Greek manuscripts. Greek manuscripts. And they are immaculately preserved. When he says authors, he's talking about people who are making super texts from multiple manuscripts that are degrading because these scrolls would degrade. The animal skin would get old and it would start to crack. So they would copy it. You have people, people in Russia, people in Germany, people in Antioch, Syria. All of those manuscripts agree 100%. There's only one point, what is it, 1.8% of manuscripts, 44, 48 manuscripts, and some papyri and some other stuff that are, that are maybe divergent. And most of those appear to have their origin from one place. So you, can, you have this strong backbone of the Bible, and that's what came under assault. And we let them have it. Wait your tongue, Nick. You know, I, I I can't give you all those statistics. I just don't have the brain for that. But what I do know is the power behind the word. Amen. And so I question these men in these positions that, well, that can't be right. And I'm, I'm like, what do you mean? I just, all I know is that there's power in the word and in the way that it's changed my life and how it's been applicable and and change me and change circumstances and the blessings. So when you're getting so technical behind if the word is true, if it's not true, you've missed the relationship that God is speaking to you through the word. Well, and, and uh, Char Charlie's about to, yeah, but I, so, so, so husband and wife here, just real quick. I'm, I, I, I think I know where you're going. I'm, I'm just going to say. It's good to double check and to verify. It's bad to lose sight of what is the gospel when you're so worried and you're biting your nails and you're saying, is this true? Do we not do that with every aspect of our lives? Do we, yea, hath God said? Do we not all do that on every front of our life at some point? Would I build a house on an unsure foundation? Am I going to entrust my eternal life on an unsure foundation? Some At some point, yeah. Well, some might, but the the issue becomes if if I can't adequately trust what is written, what am I doing following it? Because now I have to become God and determine what is and what is not. Well, that's the objective, is it not, when we start to twist that? Josh, one last one, and then we're going to Yes, because I, I just want to actually talk about that and the people who do bring these objections. Uh, to bring that objection of, well, how do I know it was not twisted? Let me tell you, you'll have to invalidate every single writing mm -hmm. of ancient antiquity if you make that case. And you're going to have to tell me how – you're going to have to go – document by document to tell me how each of the other documents. And so it is a pretty weak argument to make against it. Uh, but what I think you see is you have these people who saw how valuable God's word was and they buried it in the sand and they put it in places where the Roman government would not get a hold of it. 
and they had it so it would be preserved to another generation. And that is a testament to God's providential preservation. Amen. And so the other thing is, is you don't need, uh, Frank Turk says, you don't need an inerrant Bible to believe in Jesus. You just have to have the historical Jesus who was, who was crucified, buried, and he rose from the dead. And his men, his 12 disciples and the middle circle and the outer circle, most, if not all of those people went to a martyr's death defending that belief. You don't need an inerrant Bible, but by the way, if a dude can raise from the dead and he says that he's God, Hello? you think that he can preserve his Hello? manuscripts. And that's what we've lost. So I, I think way back then we lost the gospel. Like Mr. Kevin said, we lost the gospel. We lost that that focus and we've gotten so focused on our own philosophies on what should we do? Mm-hmm. How do we build our church? How do we grow a bigger church? How do we foster that we said fo- we said don't focus on changing lives steve yeah I, I i think it would be really interesting to know from both uh from um josh matthias and what's your name again sir <laughs> call me whatever <laughs> <you want. laughs> that their their perspective on what it would take from the church to regain that authority back and really get and work on these kids to get their get them back and move into that direction you know what i'm saying we're going to dig into the kids next next, next week however however let's talk about the church in general and then and the I, church's authority in the kids way. the kids are a whole different topic that sounds good more in depth I but like the that. church in general starting with josh and then i'm going to go to kevin how do we as a church start to root out some of the distractions that are in our focus as far as the peop- the, the body of Christ? Um, I mean, I feel like you're going to look at – it's our character, right? Like just – I mean, I even think like as pastors, as church leaders, I think we have to look at our character and the authenticity of working through difficult passages – uh, that was something just like as a youth pastor, like I feel like it's very easy to just like skip over the hard stuff. And I think the hard stuff is what the church is asking, or not even just the church, but people in general, like they're asking about those things. And so um, not being afraid to tackle the hard questions, but at the same time, uh, being willing to kind of like talk through what does this look like on a, on a day-to-day basis? Like how does this fit into my life? And I think it's the application of the scripture and being able to take it and understand how does this apply and how does this affect my life as opposed to let me just check the box off of going to church for the week and then just move on with my life. Like it, what we learn has to affect what we do. Amen. So. so if I heard you correctly, you just said you need to live authentically. And I hate that word. I do hate that word. But you need to live in a way. Do I believe that Jesus is my Lord? Do I believe that I have to live a changed life? Do I believe that God's holy and I need to lead, lead a different life accordingly to that? And that includes being in his word, trying to get to know him. Yeah. Well, why do you why do you hate that word authentic, authentically? Because it's overused and it is is it, it has lost its meaning. Like like the word Christian, it has lost its meaning. Uh, if, if you want to respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say like the idea of being authentic is just like as a pastor, I think there's a lot of expectation that I know it all, right? Like I should know every aspect of the Bible. It's like, I don't, right? Like there's things that I'm learning. There's things that I'm studying. There's things that I'm going to, you know, that interest me that I'm going to study. So it's like saying that I'm authentic or whatever, that you, whatever term you want to use. It's just the idea that I'm working through these things. Like I'm just because I'm, I stand on the stage on Sunday doesn't mean that I know every aspect and that I live it all perfectly. I'm working to, you know, like I'm, I want to, like, I want to learn these things. I want to grow in my knowledge of these things. And so I think it's the authentic side is to say, like, I'm working through these things just like you are, right? Just like everyone else is. So that boy's so, yeah, that he is. And I want to go to Mr. Kevin and I'm, I'm going to toot his own horn here. So he doesn't have to, I, I, I want to say something upon. about, about, uh, about Kevin. Kevin has been doing this like Josh, he's been serving. He's not, he's not ordained or I don't think you're ordained in any way. Yeah. He's not ordained, but he has been giving of his self-service to his local New Testament church in various ways, but predominantly mentoring young people for over 20 years. Okay. So I want you to listen to what he's going to say as well. Uh, 
when it comes to regaining that authority in the culture, what do they need to see from us as far as discipling and mentoring and being alive in other people's lives? Okay. So a lot of times we ask the question, why are the youth leaving the church? Why are, and then you have to move up a little bit and say, why are the college age leaving the church? And then you have to move up to the, the, the younger parents. Everybody seems to be like, why are we leaving the church? And I have to boil that down to apathy. Hmm. People are, you know, I think sometimes we think we walk in the church and we walk out of the church. That's Sunday. We walk in, we walk out. We don't take that message to to the – so while if we're not taking that – we're very – sometimes we're good at getting the message in the church. We're not so good sometimes getting the message out of the church. I tell the kids, I said, I'm 50, 58. I have been talked to about my salvation and the gospel outside of these walls less than a handful of times from Christians or even talking to non-Christians about it less than a handful of times. And if we can't walk out of these doors and speak the gospel into the people's lives, why would we, why would the church even be credible outside of these walls? If we're not, correct, you know, because even in the church, other than the pastor standing up there and preaching about the gospel and salvation, I don't even think I could count on one hand how many people inside the church have ever asked me about my salvation or about how to be saved. So if I'm not speaking it in the church and I'm not speaking it outside of the church, how's the church even going to be valued in this culture? You're a fruitless tree in that scenario. Right. Josh? So as someone who is under the tutelage of of Mr. Mr. Kevin— Mr. Kevin Horn for like a, a month period, a month long period or two month long period. I do want to say what stood out to me because that was a time where I came back to church um, and I hadn't been in church for a while. What stands out to me, and I think Pastor Josh Mathias said it, it was the fact that he was who he said he was. There was no question for me about who he said he was. It's so the authentic part of like he was authentically who he said he was. He wasn't somebody who misrepresented it. And also, I think going to your point about how do we recapture that authority, we cannot worry about what the world thinks about us. We just yes. have to unashamedly preach the gospel, and that is it. If we if we do that and we live it out authentically, right we're there. going to be doing what we need to be doing. Don't leave the man hanging. For those of you on audio, you don't know what happened, but Steve was like, pound it, pound it, pound it, pound it. Okay. Come on, man. Don't but to Kevin's point and to Josh Gilbert's point, one of the things that— I do not share the gospel enough outside of the, the walls of the church, okay? I don't. But I've had people, I've still had people come up to me and say, you, you did this in a professional setting. Like, how do you have the cojones to do this? I wouldn't, I had one guy say, I would never talk as openly about God in front of people, I, you know, and, and that, that day I was in front of 20 people and I, and I just, I was actually leading a class and teaching. And this guy comes up to me after and goes, how did you do that? I said, these people need Christ more than I need my job. If I lose my job, Christ has my back. I have been homeless, penniless overnight. I have lost everything, job and home overnight. Not everyone's had that benefit. That is one of the biggest blessings of my life, to lose everything in a day. Mm -hmm. It gives you perspective that, you know what? I had a warm place to sleep that night. God provided. He didn't have to provide a warm place for me to sleep for it to be a, for for it to be his provision. It could have been in a cardboard box. Guess what? God provided people in the church to take myself and my family in. I had a warm place to sleep. Okay? I have not applied for a job in years. I have been able to work. It's been up and down. It has not been always the best thing. But look, God has provided opportunities. He's provided ways for me to move forward. God provides. He is Jehovah Jireh. If you believe that, don't. There's a difference between sharing God's word and being an obnoxious jerk. Uh, make sure that when you share God's word, it's out of a place of love, not moral superiority. Mm -hmm. The purpose is not to own them. The person is to win them. 
Yep. Okay. We out we outlawed that uh, a few you know hundreds or so years ago. You can't own anyone anymore. How about you just win them? Because if, if you own the libs, then you have to feed them. Uh, as yeah. opposed to if you win them, they be, they come to your side. So don't own the libs. Win the libs. That is not a good thing. You don't want to own someone. You want to win them to your side. With that thought, moving over to Miss Nikki. Final thoughts for the day from the chair of theology. Well, I think that the best thing that we can do for the culture is really is relational. And I was sharing this with Charlie this morning is that, yeah, we, we share the gospel. Do we show the gospel and think about that? So yesterday at work, I had a coworker that was in a lot of pain and she was hurting and she was just crying and just ran up to her and just hugged her, just hugged her. Um, and those type of things are meaningful when people really know that you care. And that should be a, a flow of your relationship with God to love other people. Yes, words are important to share those words, but to show that love is much more important. That whole trite, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That is true. There's some truth in that, and and I'll say something, and I want Josh Matthias to react to this, if you care to, and then put your own thoughts in. Jesus never started with Jesus. Jesus always started with the person when he was on a one-on-one interaction, not when he was talking to the Pharisees, not when he was talking to a group of people, but when he was on a one-on-one, he started with the person. He started with, where are you right now? And then... He made a connection. He made a relationship. He discipled them for all of 12, 14 seconds, two minutes, led them to the point where they saw their need for him. And then when they asked, where can I get this living water that you speak of? Lord, I am not worthy for you to come into my house. Just say it and it will be done because I'm a man under authority and I tell a soldier, go, and he goes and tell him, come, and he comes. You are the same. Then Jesus brought the gospel to them. He only brought the gospel out after he had connected with their needs. When it comes to relational, and again, I don't like the word relational evangelism because it's been in too many freaking books, but I think that there's an important concept in that. How can we as Christians focus on our relationships inside the church and outside of the church so that we're actually acting as Christ does in the Bible? Um, I think it's it's asking questions, you know, like getting to know the person that you're talking to, right? Because the things that they're going through, the things that they're experiencing, the ability to, you know, if, if I'm studying the Bible on my own, right, and then I'm talking to somebody else that's experienced something, it's connecting those things, not not making a beeline right at it, but it's just the ability to, to connect them, to bring them together um, to the point that the person that you're talking to, they're, they're starting to question things. They're looking for things on their own. And, and as they're kind of like working through it, then you bring, then you bring the truths of scripture to them. And so kind of like what Miss Nikki was saying, it's, it's living authentically or is, or, um, uh, you know, in relational that you're genuine in what you, what you believe. And so <clears throat> to, <clears throat> sorry, like I was saying, uh, you know, taking the idea of, I, the scripture that I know, the person I'm talking to, asking those questions. That's one of the things that when we think about, when we look at Jesus' interaction, it's, it's questions, right? It's it's getting them to to think about these things. And once they begin to question things on their own, then that's when Jesus steps in and, he's, and then he reveals who he is and what he's doing. He's the bread of life in these things. And so I think it's just, it's it's helping somebody work through it on their own. And then at that same time, you're, you're bringing the gospel into it and being patient with it, right? It's not it's not just like this immediate thing. It's it's this patience and, and time that it takes. He just laid out a really, really good definition of discipleship mm-hmm. coming alongside. And by the way, the word, what does the word exhort mean in the Greek? What is that Greek word for exhort that you see in the scripture when it, when it says to exhort the unbeliever or to exhort the believer? Parakaleo. Yeah. And that word in the Holy Spirit is para. Cleat. Walk alongside. You're supposed to walk alongside as the Holy Spirit does with us. We have that helper. Jesus in John 14 said, I will send you another comforter. We are to be that comforter 
in someone's trial and need, as Miss Nikki said. We're supposed to come along and walk with them. That's why it's hard to be a cultural difference. And it doesn't start at the White House. It doesn't start at the courthouse. It starts in your house, how you relate to other people. Amen. Mr. Kevin, thoughts for the day? Good questions. These are all really good questions. Um, I just, I think it is, it's kind of like someone, and I just had this thought, someone's sitting on a house and they need help. And you're at the bottom and they don't necessarily trust you. And you say, hey, you need Jesus. Wouldn't it be better to take that first step up the ladder and say, how are you doing? Mm Mm-hmm. And then, and then you know, you talk a little bit, and then you say, do you need help with anything? Yeah, I need this. So you take another step up that ladder. All of a sudden, you're beside them, like you said, and they're more likely to trust you. Um, when I was the youth pastor before Josh, when I youth pastor, I was whatever the church wants to call it, I made sure I stood outside the door of the room and every student that came in, I said good morning to, made fun of them, teased them, and we had the relationship. They knew when I wasn't there. I knew when they wasn't there because I did that. I also stood outside the classroom when they were leaving and said goodbye to them. See you next week. You build these relationships for a purpose. And I tell them all the time that if I don't get to speak the gospel in their lives and I don't, I'm failing, and I love them too much to fail. You know, I think it was uh, Penn. Or was it Penn or is it Teller? Which one was it who said it? He said either there must be a specific type of hatred that you have for someone to believe that there is a heaven and a hell and for you not to attempt to dissuade them from hell. And uh, by the way, this gentleman is an atheist. You look at Penn and Teller's show. Penn, I believe. I believe it was uh, Penn. Yes, yeah, William Penn. William Penn. I always want to say Sean Penn, and I know that that's wrong. That's an actor. That's a really annoying actor. But anyway, it's William Penn, thank you, who said you must really despise someone to think that there is a eternity of hell and not talk to them. If you love them, you will come alongside them and attempt to know them and walk with them. That tells me he's searching. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Steve, final thoughts for the day. Yeah. um, You know, if you... You know, you've been listening to this podcast and you've been having thoughts about uh, wondering if you're saved or not. You know, you don't really have to have a pastor with you to be saved. All you have to do is ask Jesus into your heart to ask forgiveness of your sins and believe that he's died on the cross for you and accepting as your Lord and Savior, and believe that in your heart. And you can be saved. And it's never too late in your life to do that. I was 48 when I was saved. You can never be too late. There are people who aren't saved until they're in their 60s, or even later, or on their deathbed. It's never too late. So always know that you can still be saved. You can do it laying in your bed when you've been reading a book and decide that you want to be saved from something that you've read, something that you've been hearing on the radio, that you've been listening to this podcast, do it. It will be the best thing that you have ever done in your life. And by the way, just to build off of that, if you have the the mean old neighbor versus the nice neighbor, the mean old neighbor could very well be closer to Christ Mm-hmm. Than the than, than the kind kind atheist or or Buddhist or whatever you have next to you, I'm not singling any particular group out. I'm saying, do not give up. Do not think that you are changing or saving someone. You are being used by the Spirit. God doesn't need you to save souls. He right. wants you to come alongside Him in that work. So never give up on someone in your life. Make sure that you are a good light and testament, Gilbert. Yeah, the answer for, for how are we going to win the culture, super easy. Sacrifice, sacrifice, Amen. sacrifice. And here's and let me explain that. In ministry, you're going to have to make sacrifice. Now, here's what that does not mean. If because there's a lot of married folks in here, and a lot. If you have a husband, if you have a wife, 
remember that's your first ministry. That's your first sacrifice. That's that's your first sacrifice. Amen. That like the, and then and then after you've made that sacrifice and after you're like, okay, we've handled we've handled the business here, then sacrifice for the body. Amen. And that's where you win the culture. I, I'm going to give what I personally do, just as, and I'm single and I'm I'm not married, and so I have a lot more time on my hand. Um, but whenever single and ready to mingle, folks. And, and so I'm speaking. Uh, <laughs> yes, but and so I'm speaking to the to the people of the church out there. Uh, if you see somebody new who comes through your door, or you meet somebody new, ask to go get dinner with that person. Ask to go get coffee with that person. Ask to go meet with that person outside the walls and sacrifice some of your own personal time. Because you might have, like, your schedule might be so crazy right now, but that person's soul so much more worth it. So go and invest time in that person's life and go and just, like I said, sacrifice. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not some complicated formula. It's just simply put, if you invest time in somebody's life, that person's, and you get to know that person, that person's going to want to be with you. And let me build off that for a second. Let me build off that for that j- just one moment. That also includes the guy who's alone in your lunchroom at work. Mm-hmm. Or in your church. In Amen. your church. Mm-hmm. Wherever wherever this person is, if they're, you know, Josh was talking about in the church. If they're at work, if this is some make sure that you are ready to be used. And one of the things that uh, Mr. Charlie often says, and I'm going to turn this over to him in a second, is look for where God is. Mm -hmm. Look for where God is working, and there you are going to find miracles. You will find miracles when you follow along to look. If someone's asking Hey, what do you think about this? I know that you you got some weird beliefs on this. You're a Christian or what have you. Um, what do you think about this? My 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 sister is uh, you know gone and, and done this and that and whatever. She's marrying a guy that does whatever. What are your thoughts on that? That's your opportunity, not to cram Jesus down their throat, but more importantly, it's to be part of their life. And when you acknowledge that the wisdom, any wisdom you have, comes from God and from the Bible. That will not, that'll be a natural flow. Mr. Charlie, final thoughts for the day. Josh Gilbert answer part two, Romans 12, one and two. I beseech ye therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, a living dead man, die to self, live for Christ, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed, be metamorphosed, be the butterfly. Don't be afraid to go into the cocoon. That's the issue so that we can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you do this, beloved out there, if you do this, you will have an influence over the culture. And it's not influence for influence's sake. You know, Chuck Swindoll said it really well. Uh, He was at a group of seminarians teaching a sermon, and he recounted this one day where he uh, was the first, it was his first time as an associate pastor preaching, Chuck Swindoll. And he preached this great sermon, and everyone came up and was slapping him on the back. Good job, Chuck. You did a great job, pastor, this and that. And one surly older elder, you, you may or may not have had any experiences like this, walks up to him and goes, claps him on the back and goes, just remember you're on borrowed celebrity because he was in his pastor's church. And Chuck Swindoll took it as this. He says, you know what? That that guy was a little surly. He was a little, but he was right. I was preaching God's word. It's not about the pastor. It's I was preaching God's word. And everyone came up behind and glo- you know, glorified me on what God's word said. He said, your influence is borrowed your name is borrowed. You're an ambassador on this world. Go forth, be an ambassador. Then Christ will be deemed worthy in the eyes of the nations. So with that said, if you like this podcast, like, comment, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Thank you. Hundreds of thousands of downloads on the audio. Thank you so much. We have a slow increase on the YouTube, slow increase on the rumble. I think Mr. Charlie got us banned on YouTube one more time. We got our views went up and up and up. Them dang, no, I'm joking. Uh, I know. (laughs) 
Yep, yep, yep. So we got we, we to gotta be careful what words we use because there are uh, AI sensors that scroll. And These grape is not going crazy. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, no, no. Anyway, so <laughs> with that said, your liking and sharing is more important than ever. There's a very small people who actually get this. Ring that bell because subscriptions do not mean anything. You got to ring the bell to get the notification. And on Rumble, thank you, Rumble, for having us. We are having some hiccups with the cross on Rumble. We're looking into that. All's good. With that said, we got nothing else for you. We love you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right. If you're still here, if you are still here, you are our super listeners or we did indeed put you to sleep. Uh, go back and listen to that. I thought that was a fun podcast. Uh, going around the room, one last thing for you. Put us in the comment section if you like. Miss Nikki, what was your favorite thing about the 60s? I was born. Okay. Oh. What was your don't. favorite thing about the 60s? Did you have one? <laughs> That's fine. What was your favorite thing about the 60s? Well, Nikki stole mine, but I'll go with my wife. I'll go with that. Steve? Muscle cars, man. Oh, that's mine, gosh, dude. Man. That was mine. I was going to finish with muscle cars. Man, can't beat them. 69 Dodge uh, Charger. All the way, bud. 67 Firebird. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Josh. Favorite thing about the 60s? Favorite thing about the 60s. We know. I mean, we... it's in the show, man. I mean, that... I'm about to either sound super stupid, so please correct me if I'm historically inaccurate. You don't sound that way. Yo, did, was Forrest Gump, like, in the 60s? I think it was written as though it was done in the 60s. I think but that's what I'm saying. But that's what I'm saying. Like, yes. was it written as it was done in the yes. 60s? Then yeah. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. Okay, it's in the 80s, but we'll give it to you. Charlie. I was say, that's what I was scared. I was like, Charlie. my precious wife was born. Okay. Amen. Amen. Josh, oh, oh, do you have anything? Oh, that's okay. Tell that from me. Oh, Uno. Oh, One, two, three. Oh, Aw. Oh, damn. One of the greatest movies of all time the producer guy. As always, thank you, Rai Rai, for producing. Yeah. Says some of the greatest movies. Give me one. 101 Dalmatians, Sound of Music, Mary Poppins were all done in the Albert 60s. Albert Hitchcock is overrated. We got to work on your movie choices. Just say. He's, so he's a he's a, he's a a Disney and Chicken Nuggies guy, okay? That is our producer, and we love him. Uh, put, put a like down there for Mr. Producer. Okay, with that said, we love you all so much. Have a wonderful week. Bye-bye. Bye. See you.